Well, as we move into the new year, I'm excited about all that we get to look forward to. Uh, this whole COVID thing's been sort of crazy. How many is just sort of tired of it? Oh, yeah. It's sort of getting old. Um, but I also believe that in a way, it sort of awakened us as a church and it's helped us refocus and recenter our attention on what we're supposed to be doing. So while it's been devastating in so many ways, it's also been good in some ways. A few weeks ago, I stood at the cemetery and uh, performed the, the funeral service for one of our longtime members, Roger Mack. And there's something about standing in a graveyard and standing. Uh, uh, in a funeral service as you're, as you're sitting there, as the person's laid out in the box in front of you. And I always remember this, and I oftentimes talk about it at a funeral as well. King Solomon wrote something really strange in his wisdom literature. In Ecclesiastes chapter 2, he said, It's better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting, for death is the destiny of every man. The living should take this to heart. Now, that sounds a little strange, because how many of you would rather go to a funeral than a party? How many of you would rather go to a party over a funeral? All right, now it's interesting because King Solomon did not say that you should enjoy a funeral better than a party, but he said that it's better for you to go to a funeral than a party. And why would he say something like this? And here, because Solomon understood something. At a funeral, you face your own demise. You face the end of yourself that one day it will be you sitting in that box instead of that person that's in the box. And one day your life will come to an end and it has a way of sort of sobering us up a little bit. It has a way of sort of focusing us to ask those big questions. What's my life about? Why am I here? Am I accomplishing what I hope to accomplish in my short lifespan that I have? And in many ways this past year with the virus running rampant through our society, I think it's caused us to sort of as a church and as many churches across our nation to sort of take a step back and ask that same question. Why are we here? What is our purpose? Are we accomplishing what we're supposed to be accomplishing? So as we moved into this new year, I felt compelled and directed by the Holy Spirit to walk down this road of exploring how we might experience God more in this upcoming year and to explore why we exist as a church and why we need to help other people also experience God, maybe for the first time or in greater depth for themselves. And that's why we exist. We as a church exist to help people experience God more, to help them go deeper in their faith, no matter where they're at on the spectrum. Maybe they don't even know God yet, and our hope is to lead them to Jesus so they might be able to find him and be able to discover him. Or maybe it's finding somebody who's been walking with God for a while and helping them move on down this road of spiritual maturity and spiritual growth. So to help us on our journey this morning, or to help us on this journey, I picked up a book that I hadn't touched in over probably 20 years. 
The place that I picked up this book first off was back in West Union, Iowa, our little church back there. We took the church through it and went through the book and went through the study guide and everything. And it was uh, Experiencing God by Henry Blackaby. And Pastor Blackaby did a great job of laying out how we all are on this journey and how we all need to experience God more. Now, I haven't shown this diagram yet, but I'm going to pop this diagram up here. He gave this wonderful diagram that explains what we see in Scripture. We have God, you've seen a little bit of this, God and Him moving in a particular direction through all of life. Now, that's one, God's work. And we spend a lot of January talking about God's work and what He's been up to and this overall movement because we really have to come to a place where it's not about me and it's all about God. And I loved, I loved the diagram that I put in there, that little arrow of us and so often we think this huge arrow of God that he's going to just shift his arrow to come down with me and then shift back up. No, it can't work that way. Logically, it just doesn't make sense. God has been moving. He's been doing something huge from long before the earth was even here and will continue long after the earth's gone. Then last week we went into this next step of the next reality and that's the relationship with God, that God wants us in a relationship. And so I framed it last week that God has has been pursuing us. He has been going to town trying to catch us. And it is not God who is elusive. It's not God who's hard to catch. It's us. And God's the one in pursuit. So my challenge last week is let God catch you. Stop running and just let him catch you. And what we talked about is that Jesus' goal isn't to come in and tell you what you need to do, isn't to reveal all the life plans he might have for you in an instant. It's not to come in and take away all your bad stuff and give you a bunch of good stuff. Jesus wants to come in to do something particular. Does anybody remember what that is? What's Jesus want to do? I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll do something. What did Jesus say he'd do? Go to Copper Top. He wants to eat with us. He wants to sit down. He wants to, we call that in the church fellowship. That's a church word. But he wants to just hang out with us. He wants to talk with us. He wants to fellowship with us. He wants to eat with us. Now, here's the cool thing. As we get caught by God and we sit down and we start talking to God, talking to Jesus Christ, as we start to get to know him, not only do we know God, not only do we get to see what he's up to, but we also begin to experience his heart. And that's one of the goals of discipleship, not just to know more about the Bible and know more about God. The hope of discipleship is that we begin to understand Jesus' heart. And this is the way Jesus functioned. He didn't just tell the disciples all that they needed to do. They wanted Jesus to understand his love, to understand why he did the things he did, to understand why he touched and loved the people that nobody else would. Jesus wanted them to understand his heart. And so as we're working with God and getting to know him and growing in our faith, God begins to reveal his heart to us and we begin to understand not only has God been working, but what's his heart behind this? Why is he doing some of what he's doing? And here's the wild thing that we're going to go down to step number three now today. When we begin to understand God's heart, God then invites us in to what he's doing. He invites us into that huge arrow of his movement.
And now this is why I brought my planes this morning. It's sort of sad. My eyesight is going to, the, to pot. It's going to garbage. And so I haven't been able to fly for years because if a plane gets shucks, so the plane gets to the back wall, I can't tell if it's upside or right side up anymore. Uh, but I wanted to explain to you how you learn to fly a model airplane. Anybody interested in learning how to fly a model airplane? Okay, thank you, Eric. If you really want to learn, by the way, you can use this baby right here. And you got the property. And you have a pond. Oh, that'd be fun. Pond with floats. We could use your pond. That'd be even more fun. Okay, there was a couple ways. When I started learning, that was long before computerized radios, uh, long before better technology. And uh, the way they used to teach, we're COVID safe, so come on up, Michelle. I'm going to use you because I can breathe on you because I already have. Okay. <laughs> The way you used to learn how to fly was pretty intimate. So if I'm the student, you're the student, okay? Michelle has no idea how to do this. I'm a bad learner. I know you're a bad learner, and you're bad with controls. I've ridden with you. Okay, so the way you used to learn is literally the instructor would go like this around you, and you would put your fingers on top of mine, okay? And, oh, not that hard. Okay, you're going to start controlling. And I would control the airplane, and you would just feel what I'm doing. Okay, and then eventually we would switch. You would control, and I would just feel what you're doing until you got comfortable. Now, that's a real intimate way to learn. There's another way to learn. That's actually a decent way to learn. If all else fails, another way to learn is take your plane out, gas it up, start it, and throw it in the air and hope the best. I had one of my trainers said that uh, what goes up will eventually come down. Get it? Maybe not in one piece. And actually getting an airplane, especially this big guy here, getting an airplane into the sky is easy. Anybody can get an airplane up and get it flying. Getting it to level off, getting it to be stable up there, and then the big thing, getting it back on the ground in one piece, that's the hard part. So they came up, that was one way. Then the way I sort of learned is my trainer sat next to me, and when I got myself in trouble, I threw him my controls. So he's sitting there barking out orders. Okay, here! You know, and I give him the controls. And then they came up with a wonderful modern idea. Yes, this, this, I thought this box had it. They came up with what's called a buddy cord or a trainer cord. And what would happen with the trainer cord? There it is right there. I thought there was a switch. What would happen is I would hook my box, my transmitter, up to another transmitter, and the trainer would stand there, and he would have control of the plane. And then when he pushes the little button, which is right here, I would have control of the plane. So what we would do, I'd just show you a little bit of how this would happen. I'm not going to fly this in the sanctuary. That would be really dumb. Um, is that he would take it off. He would get it up in the air. And then when my trainer would say two accidents up. So you have to be two accidents up so you have room to mess up twice before you're on the ground. He would then say, okay, you got it. You're flying. Just get it level and make nice big circles. Go. And he'd hold the button. And I'm sitting there flying in big circles. I'm thinking I'd be bored if I was a trainer, but this is the way you learn. And so you, once you get the big circles down, I say, okay, now we're going to do something else. I want you to try and uh, start to do some maneuvers. You know, like flip the plane over, run it upside down, you know, make it roll, do a loop, something, do something. And if I get in trouble, he'd be sitting there watching. And as soon as I was in trouble, he would let go of the button and start controlling it himself. Now, here comes the hard part. Like I said, everything that goes up must come down. So he'd say, okay, now we're going to do the tough part. We're going to first help you learn to take off. Okay, so that's not that tough. 
And what most people do when they're learning how to fly is they jam the throttle up and they crank back on the aileron. Now, if you know anything about flight, you're going to put the plane in an altitude of like this. And what's going to happen to the plane? There's a word for it. Stall. You're going to go up faster than you have airspeed to carry the plane. And what's going to happen is gravity is going to take your plane and throw it at the ground. That's what happens. You lose all control and you're just going to barrel nose first right into the ground. So he'll help you take off. And if you start going too far, he'll let go of the switch and level it out. Okay, take it back. And then you'd go until you got up. And so he'll help you learn how to do that a couple times. Then you're able to take off. You figure that out pretty quick. You stall a plane once and about wet your pants and tell you what, you won't stall again because it freaks you out too much. And so then he gets you up, he gets you flying. Okay, now we're going to learn how to land. And so now what I want you to do is I want you to stand there. I'm going to land the plane and you just, I'm going to tell you what I'm doing and you just follow along with your fingers until we land. And okay, that worked really good. Now I want you to try it. So he would line you up and right before the plane hit the ground, he'd let me have control and then set it down on the ground. Next time he might say, okay, I'm going to let you be up in the sky making the final approach. Now you bring it all the way down. Okay, did that well. And now let's do the hard part. You need to make the final turn, line it up and bring it onto the ground all by yourself. And so I'd be doing it, you know, sitting here like this, because I know how much money I spent building and how much time I spent building that plane. By the way, I've, if if you haven't crashed a plane, then you haven't flown a plane, okay? So they come and go. Um, and then I would, I would learn to land. I want you to keep this imagery in your head because when God invites us into his work, he doesn't take the plane of what he wants you to do and say, okay, get ready, here you go. And he throws it into the air and says, all righty, let's see how well you do with that. What God does when he invites us into his work is he's got his control of whatever it is that he wants you to do. He's been there. He knows what's going to happen. He's walked in this space a million times before. He understands all the circumstances. And when he invites you in, all he does is flip the switch and say, okay, you take over for a little bit here. And then you start controlling. And as soon as you get in trouble, okay, I'll take it back. All right, now you take back over. All right, you got it? All right, good. Oh, get in trouble, I'll take it back. And this is the way God invites us into his work. He's always in control. He's doing what he's been doing for a long time. But he invites us to come in and participate with him, partner with him in what he's been doing. Now, he's been doing this since the very beginning. If you go into the Bible, you'll find all sorts of characters, all sorts of people that God did this with. If you remember the very first people in the Bible, anybody remember the very first two people? Adam and Eve. So he invites Adam and Eve, he creates them, and he invites them into the garden. And it's really interesting because God gives Adam and Eve command. He gives them instructions, and he tells them, what I want you to do now is I want you to take care of this garden. I put it here, I built it, but now I want you to manage the garden for me. I want you to run things. I want you to, to work the earth. I want you to name all the animals, Adam. I want you to discover new things. I want you to enjoy this earth, and I want you to manage it, and I want you to work it. God invited humanity into taking care of his earth. That's one of the very first things God did. You go down the road a little bit later, and uh, you run into this character named Noah. And the earth now had turned sour. The humans on the earth, anyway, had turned sour and went south. And God invited Noah into his work. And he said, God, you know, God told Noah, I'm going to destroy the earth. I'm so upset with it, I'm going to wipe it out. But Noah, I'm going to invite you into my plan. 
And will you launch out in faith and build a really, really, really big boat? And will you do that? And Noah builds an ark. A little while later, we go down and we run into this guy named Abraham. And God is about salvation of the earth. If you read the Bible, that's what God's after. He is after the salvation of all mankind. And the Bible from beginning to end is grabbing back the heart of God. And so God comes to Abraham and invites Abraham into his grand scheme of bringing his salvation to the world. And he says, Abraham, if you'll walk away from what you know and you'll follow me, I invite you into this incredible journey. I'm going to make your family as new numerous as the sand, as numerous as the stars in the sky, if you'll follow me wherever I lead you. Abraham, I'm inviting you into my work. Well, Abraham's family did okay, but then they got themselves lost in Egypt and became enslaved by Egypt. And then God invited Moses. God wanted the Israelite people freed. He wanted them in the promised land. God was in that work, and God invites Moses into his work. A little later, he invites King David. The people are clamoring for a king. God says, you don't want this. I'm your king. I'm your God. And they clamor anyway, so they get Saul. Saul ends up being a rotten king. And so God invites David into his work to be a godly king, to be a righteous king. A little while later, Israel had gone south again, and God invited, God wanted to declare his salvation. He wanted to declare his forgiveness and his, his bringing back in of his people to himself. And he looks across and he says, who should go? Who should be sent? You know, who will stand up for me and the, and the heavenly host and declare my will, my love for my people? And Isaiah says, hey, I'll go. And God says, okay, that's my work. Isaiah, I invite you in. We go forward a little bit further. We run into this lady, a very, very young lady, a teenager probably, early teens, mid-teens, a righteous girl. And God's salvational work is still happening, this huge work that he wants done. And he wants to bring now himself, part of himself, the Messiah. He wants to bring Jesus into the world. And he's looking across the world, and he comes to this young teenage mom, not mom, young teenage virgin, and says, will you join me in my work? And Mary says, yes. I'm sure God freaked him out a little bit. God also invited Joseph at that same time. This is what I'm going to do with your fiance. And she said, yes, are you on? And first Joseph said, uh-uh, not on. And then changed his mind when he realized this really was of God. A few years later, Jesus has his ministry. He, he dies, he rises again, he ascends up into heaven. And all of a sudden, the birth of the church happens. And this really, really nasty man shows up on the scene. And this guy is trying to kill all the Christians that he can wrangle up and kill. He's trying to persecute this new church because he is a Jew of Jew. He is of the Herodias family. He is a Pharisee of Pharisee. He is the well, very well-trained, high-educated in the Jewish systems. He understands all the law. He understands all the philosophy. He gets it all. And he knows that Christianity is wrong. And he goes to start killing Christians. And on a road... God stops him and says, will you, Saul, stop? And will you start working for me? God invites a murderer of Christians in to start leading the Christian way. And Paul says, Saul, says yes. 
And God changes Saul's name to Paul, and Paul ends up writing most of the New Testament that we have before us today, most of the letters that are in there. Over and over again, God invites people into his work. He asks us to join him in what they are doing. And this list goes on and on throughout Scripture. And none of these people made great, wonderful plans for God and then said, okay, God, I've made these great, wonderful plans for you. Bless me and bless them. What they did is they were minding their own business, doing their own thing. And God said, okay, now I need you to come in and start working for me. I need to invite you into what I am doing. And all they did was simply said yes to that invitation. This week I ran across a fascinating story. A young girl, must have been uh, not young, young, but uh, early 20s, gave her heart to Jesus Christ. And she had lived a pretty rough life, not a, not a good life. She gave her heart to Jesus Christ, but, but uh, new Christians and shucks, even us old Christians can still do some stupid things from time to time. Amen? We can all end up doing some stupid things. Well, she did a stupid thing. She got busted for it and got thrown into prison. And she went to her pastor and told her pastor, I am scared to death. You know, I've never been, I, all the stupidity that I've done, I've never ended up in prison. And she was a small little girl. And she goes, I don't know what prison life is like. And I'm scared to death. And the pastor's like, well, you did a stupid thing. You got caught and you're going to have to pay the fine. But, you know, just, just stay open to what God has for you. So she went into prison. On the first day in prison, this huge lady came and uh, started, the prison boss, the prisoner, of the boss of the prisoners, uh, smacked her, beat her up, knocked her two front teeth loose. And the next day at lunch, that boss lady came over, sat down next to her and said, you're Christian, eh? She said, yeah, I'm a Christian. And he said, good, you're going to leave me in a Bible study this afternoon. She said, what should I say? What can I do? Okay. And she goes, I never led a Bible study before. I don't have a clue what to do. I've never even been trained in the Bible because I'm just a new Christian. But she was scary. And so I did it. I did not do a Bible study. Bible study. Okay. So she showed up. She said, we sat down. We opened God's word. We read a little bit. I didn't even know where to read. And I said, okay, so what's that say to you? And that's, what's it say to me? And then we left. So the next day, this big lady came in again and said, you're going to do a Bible study again. She goes, but I don't do Bible studies. Well, you did it yesterday. You're going to do it again today. This time she brought a bunch of her cronies in. Within a couple months, they had over 22 ladies in this Bible study, almost two dozen ladies in this Bible study. And it was going strong. And they were doing a, not a Bible study, Bible study. All they were doing was sit down, read a little bit of God's word from wherever, because they didn't know where to read, and uh, ask, well, what did that say to you? And this is what it said to me. A couple weeks later, after this thing was really taking off and really going, there was a riot in their cell block. And what ended up happening was all these ladies got spread all over the place because they couldn't keep them together, so they moved them all throughout the prison system, moved most of them to different prisons. And she then told the pastor when she's back home telling all the story, she said, I didn't know what we're going to do because this thing was actually going and God was using this. And now all of a sudden we're all in different places and we can't do our Bible study anymore. And she said, but then I began to hear that those ladies that got moved all over the place, they started doing a not a Bible study, Bible study in their prisons. And now there's about 20 some prisons doing Bible study, seeing ladies' lives change, seeing the prison culture change because they're not doing a Bible study, Bible study. Only God could organize something like that. Only God could use a bad situation and turn it into an unbelievably great situation. 
But in order to take this step, in order to be invited in, and in order to say yes to what God is doing, there's a little word that sometimes we don't like. And the little word is called faith. God never invites us into something we could do on our own. If you could do it on your own, you don't need faith to do it. But if God is inviting you into His work, it is going to be a step over into an area of faith that if God doesn't show up, it's going to fail. It's not going to work the way you think. And this, by the way, is the difference between we're collecting life stories and God stories. Keep sending them in. Keep writing them up there. But that's one of the major differences is a God story is a God story. He had to show up. He called you in and He had to do the work. And if God didn't show up, it was going to fail. That's a God story. God did show up. He invited me in and look what happened. A life story though is just God doing something great for you. God blessing you. God moving in your life in a cool way. But that's a little different than a God story because a God-sized story has to have God in the picture. God had to move. God had to do something there. While Hollywood messes up a lot of things, every now and then Hollywood gets some things right. And a long time ago, there was these movies called Indiana Jones. Anybody remember those movies? Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, Indiana Jones and uh, oh, what's the clip I'm going to show you? The Last Crusade, that's what I'm going to show you this morning. Every now and then, Hollywood gets it right. And I love this little clip from Indiana Jones to tell us what faith is all about. So let's watch this. Power of the Grail is the only thing that can save your father now. It's time to ask yourself what you believe.
now and then Hollywood does get it right. And I love that clip because that is exactly what God calls us to. Is I invite you into my work, but you're going to have to take a step of faith here. You're going to have to trust me. You're going to have to trust that I'm going to be there, that I'm going to hold you. And if you think this is, you know, oh, I don't know that God works that way, I want to read you a passage of Scripture. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to encourage you to open them up. Hebrews chapter 11. Whole chapter here, but I want to read just verses 20 uh, down to about the end of the chapter. And I just want to read these to you here this morning. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when he was at his was at when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions about his bones. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child and they were afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead at, to his reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. By faith, the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land. But when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell after the people had marched around them for several days, seven days. By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. And what more shall we say? I do not have time to tell you about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weaknesses was turned into strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies." Women received back their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured and refused to be released so they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging while still others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. What kind of faith do you have? What kind of faith do you have? The last paragraph, the center of the last paragraph just really catches my attention. Others were tortured, refused to be released so they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging while still others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were put to death by the sword. 
They went about in sheepskin and goats, destitute, persecuted, mistreated, and the world was not worthy of them. They lived in caves and holes in the ground. How many of you love to live in caves and holes in the ground? And yet these people were commended for their faith. Do we have the kind of faith that's willing to join God when he invites us into something? Or are we committed more to our own comfort, our own control, our own career pathways, our own financial well-being, so that we have a nice, comfortable life? I don't read anything in this passage, even if you go back to Noah and Abraham and the others that came before this in this chapter, nowhere in here does it talk about these people searching for comfort in life. Rather, they were willing to throw all their comfort to the wind and step out on faith, step out on what God was inviting them to do. As I read these words, I can't help but think that God might call some of us out of our plans, out of what we think we should accomplish, out of what we think we can do on our own. And I wonder if God won't call some of us and if God isn't already calling some of us, of us to say, hey, I need to step out. I want you to step out to where I need to show up and I need to do something great and I'm inviting you in. I'm inviting you in to what I'm doing. But it's going to take faith. The good news is, like with Indiana Jones, when we take that first step of faith into what God is doing, he's going to be there. Just like the guy controlling the airplane, when I thought it was me, is really in control, we have to remember, that's God. God's in charge. God's controlling this thing. He's given me, he's flipping the switch for just a moment to invite me into his work, but he really has this thing. But I got to step out on faith and somewhere along the line start saying, okay, I'm going to do it. I'm going to take control. I'm going to try and land this plane on my own. God's holding the trainer switch. He's ready to take over. And here's the reality. If we never step into a place where God somewhere along the line has to step in, where we never go there, if we never come to a place where God really has to step in to save our hide, then we have not taken a step of faith. When we come to that place and God invites us into his work, he promises he's going to be there. He promises he's going to show up. And that's where faith really begins. I take the step. And God starts to do some incredible things. That moment when I'm in over my head is the moment where God steps in and says, okay, now I can show up and I can do some really cool things. That's what faith is all about. If what God calls us to do on our own takes no faith, no trust in God, then it's our own doing. If God would call you, would you go? I don't know that he might, I don't know, I won't, don't want to box him in. He might say, I want you to go and become a missionary and use your tools, use your, your abilities somewhere else. But I also think God more often than not says, I want you just to use how I've made you and, and what I've put in you right now, right here with what I'm doing. I want you just to step out in your own neighborhood, in your own community, with your own family. I want you just to step into what I'm doing. I think God more often does that than call us to be missionaries. Now, sometimes he does. Sometimes he might call you to be a missionary. But are you willing to go? Are you willing to step out? Are you willing to test your faith and step into what God might be doing? 
That is a God moment and a God story. Not something you could ever make up, something you could do on your own. That's God showing up in a huge way. And so I just wanted you to hear that this morning. God is inviting us in to play with his planes. Last week he was inviting us in to go to Coppertop. But he's inviting you to come in and play with his stuff, with his toys, to play with what he's doing. He wants you to join him in his work. And that's God's grand invitation. It was his grand pursuit last week. But this is God's grand invitation, calling us to join him. Not what we're doing, in what he is doing. And are you willing to say yes? Dear Father, we've signed commitment cards already, opening ourselves up to this, and 30, 40-some people in our church said they're willing. And now, Father, we're ready for the instructions. We're ready to hear what you want done. Father, call us into this step of faith, this place where if you don't show up, it's going to fail and fail miserably. Will you call us as a church into that place as well? And help us not to live by what we can accomplish and what our finances says we can do and just by the skill sets that we can offer as individuals in our church. But Father, call us as a church to take this leap of faith, to go further than, than what we think is reasonable, to go further than what we think is possible. Call us into this, this faith, this, this, next, this chasm as Indiana Jones had to step into. And Father, I pray you'll use us as well as individuals that we will be willing to say yes to you, even if it doesn't make sense, even if we can't figure out how it all is supposed to work. God, call us as individuals into this step of faith. Give us this invitation. And Father, I pray you'll find us faithful. And I, God, I look forward to more God stories where we start writing more on that board back there of God called me to do this. I just said yes, and he showed up. Father, help us to have that kind of God-sized faith. Amen. We've been singing a lot of songs today about God's love, being that it's Valentine's Day. And something that just kind of occurred to me as Pastor was talking about um, faith and, and having faith in, in what God's doing and, and letting him work in your life. And uh, I know for myself, it can be very, very challenging sometimes to have that faith. Faith can be very difficult. Um, but this passage here, which I read a lot, but you're going to get to hear it again because um, it speaks to me, uh, I think it really helps to put our, our minds and hearts at ease um, when, we, when we step out in that faith. Uh, for I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we just need to remember that as we take those leaps of faith, that he is always with us and his love is always on us. There's a space in every beating heart There's a longing that reaches past the stars There's an answer to every question mark 
We will stand in awe of the one who breaks the 